The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH on and your host, and today is Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back great friend of the show, wonderful guest, great researcher, missionary, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And, um... I'm really looking forward to this. Well, I look forward to all of Peter's presentations, as you know, folks. But the title of today's is very timely with what's going on in the world. These talks of World War Three and what have you. We've had in the UK some general coming out, literally telling the people, the soldiers to prepare for war with Russia. And then we have this situation. We're recording this on Tuesday, folks. I only say that in case things have changed since before it's broadcast on the Thursday, where there's a problem with Lithuania restricting access to a Russian territory. Um, All sorts of terrible things going on. And the title of today's show is The Real Story of How Conspirators Coerce Countries into Catastrophic Conflicts. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic, please? Andrew, I can't help but just notice the similarities. And here we are approaching, uh, 28th of June will be the anniversary of the assassination in Sarajevo of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie uh, in 1914, which was the spark that led to the First World War, which a month later, 28th of of, uh, July, really got rolling. And um, the similarities between our time and the political, economic, media conspiracies and the manipulation which stampeded Europe into such a catastrophic conflict 107 years ago, 108 years ago now, um, and the present NATO-Ukraine conflict with the potential of widening into a Europe-wide war, it's striking. The propaganda offensives, the stereotyping of the opposition, the demonizing of the opposition, the caricaturing or ignoring of the uh, positions on on the other side, the misdirection, the disinformation. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. And you you just have to look at the propaganda. And we're being bombarded with propaganda. And propaganda generally ignores the historic context, uh, uses selective stories, and um, utilizes a narrow source of experts, those who toe the party line, repeat the narrative, who demonize the enemy, who use a narrow focus, the zoom lens rather than the wide-angle lens of context. And um, one needs to remember what Winston Churchill said, 
In wartime, truth is so precious, she should always be attended to by a bodyguard of lies. Now, that sounds funny, but um, how can truth be protected by lies? And when the other position is routinely caricatured and stereotyped, then we've got to know that we've been targeted by propaganda. And, and this is what led to the First and Second World Wars, which were catastrophic cataclysms. And do we really want to go the same way? Because as time has gone on and as the 30 years, 50 years and 60 years um, ceiling of public secrets, private secrets uh, of, of national secrets have been released, one's found out, oh, gee, hmm, so many of the things that led to the war, um, such as the sinking of the Lusitania, well, why did they seal those um, files for 60 years? And we were lied to on every level about that. And, oh, gee, so that was what was in the uh, Yalta agreement and the betrayal of millions uh, of Ukrainians and Russians into the hands of Stalin. Uh, and this Operation Keel Hall was sealed for 30 years, and one only finds out about it in 1975. Um, the, the, the war that was meant to be for democracy and freedom betrayed 3 million Russians and Ukrainians, not just soldiers, but the children who hadn't even been born in Russia, their, their wives, their families, some of whom, many of whom had never even lived in Russia because their parents or grandparents had fled uh, from the Soviet Union when the Bolshevik Revolution took over. And so you had this betrayal of millions of East Europeans into the hands of the NKVD, which later became the KGB, uh, who slaughtered most of them and the rest were put into hard labor and the gulags. And there's so many other things that came out later, like all the propaganda against Germans, uh, Trostis in Belgium turned out to be absolute propaganda nonsense that was cooked up uh, by the Committee for Public Information. And uh, um, these kind of the objectives were to mobilize hatred against the enemy, who must be dehumanized, portrayed as barbaric, brutal, cruel, and uncivilized. And many of these atrocity stories, in fact, all of the atrocity stories in the First World War turned out to be fake. Um, and they did, but they succeeded in dehumanizing and demonizing their targeted enemy. And we're seeing this today as well. Uh, of course, the goal to preserve the friendship of allies and to procure the cooperation of neutrals, which has been very successful here, getting countries that have been neutral for um, many decades, uh, such as Finland and uh, Sweden, to have them to be interested in joining NATO. Uh, and of course, to seek to demoralize the enemy. These, this is the sort of thing that um, propaganda aims to do. And you can see the hallmarks of propaganda. And we this was written after the First World War as they analyzed the propaganda that led to the First World War. And you look at the propaganda that's being used today um, concerning the conflict in Ukraine. Number one, decontextualize violence. Focus on the irrational without looking at the reasons. Because there are no reasons. Forget about the context. There is no history. You know, you're not meant to know about the coup d'etat, which the American State Department sponsored in 19, uh, in 2014, uh, which overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine, uh, and which used some very dirty tactics, including uh, firing into mobs, uh, sniper fire, killing, killing people in demonstrations arbitrarily, causing deaths on both sides uh, in order to make the whole thing spiral out of control. Uh, the, the lies, the violence, the the horrific things, you know, we're talking about people 
being thrown with petrol bombs and the the burn marks, the damage done to a person's skin and you, your face, you can't even imagine the things done by these sort of things like petrol bombs. But decontextualize violence. Don't worry about how the present administration, which is the most corrupt probably in the whole of Europe, uh, came to power. And um, ignore what's been going on in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine for the last eight years. So this concern for uh, people being targeted, civilians being caught up in a war, it only started this year. It didn't matter that for the last eight years, Russian-speaking Ukrainians have been targeted by the Ukraine army and that uh, over 15,000 were killed uh, in the last eight years uh, by artillery barrages, rocket barrages, aerial bombardments, tanks, uh, and so on. And so uh, the war that the Ukraine government has waged against the Eastern Ukrainians who speak Russian, the very people who appealed to Vladimir Putin's Russia for aid because they believed they were being targeted for destruction, um, you don't need to know that information. That just confuses the narrative because uh, this is it's not just decontextualizing the violence, but it's dualism. You've got to reduce the number of parties in any conflict to two. Now, there's normally more than two parties involved, but dualism is important. There's only two conflicts in it. And there's manichaeism. There's one side's good and the other side is evil, demonized. And you've got to portray things like Armageddon. Uh, the violence is inevitable. There's no alternatives. There's no way we could have avoided it. So you must ignore the fact that, for example, in the present conflict, Russia was warning, uh, going back already to 2008, for Ukraine not to be admitted into NATO. And uh, you must ignore the fact that Russia applied to join NATO itself multiple times from 2001 onwards and was refused. You must ignore um, the, the fact that Vladimir Putin even requested as recently as February of this year a um, guarantee that there will not be any American missiles placed in Ukraine, which Biden, as President of America, flatly refused to give such an assurance. And ignore the fact that um, Vladimir Putin was requesting urgently a meeting in February with President Biden to avoid conflict there and was turned down. Uh, so the violence is inevitable. There's no alternatives. There's no way we could avoid it and so on. And then confusion. Focus only on the conflict area, but not on the forces and factors that are influencing and causing the violence, you know, and uh, uh, never explain why. Uh, why the acts of revenge and spirals of violence? Well, forget context, forget history. You leave that out. And then there's failure to explore the causes of the escalation and the impact of the media coverage itself. And uh, we need to recognize that the Ukraine government caused a lot of the escalation itself. We're talking about the uh, the Ukrainian government that was placed in there by U.S. State Department intervention with billions of dollars, and it's been documented and it's proven uh, that it was a coup d'etat uh, from the outside that overthrew someone who was a personal friend of Vladimir Putin and an ally of Russia from being uh, the democratic elected president of Ukraine, and they put someone else in. And uh, one of the first things they did right back in February of 2014 is to uh, take away all language rights for Russian and to remove Russian from being one of the minority languages in Ukraine and force all Ukrainians, even those areas which were 95% Russian speaking, and make them um, only have medium of education schools in Ukrainian. Well, you know, th that that's something of an escalation. And 
of course, they're applying to join NATO and the amount of NATO weapons being brought in. Uh, these things can cause escalation. And the way the media are reporting many of the events also cause escalation. Then there's failure to explore the goals of outside intervention, especially the big powers, the bankers, the oil, the gas industries, and uh, so much of what's involved in energy, uh, not to mention those involved in uh, biological warfare laboratories. So leave that out. And then failure to explore peace proposals and offers of images of peaceful outcomes. Because if you want war, you've got to ignore or, or dismiss any peace offers. And there's been a lot of peace offers. And in fact, on several occasions, all Ukraine had to do was say, we won't seek to join NATO, we will stay neutral, and uh, no American bases, missiles or anything will be allowed into our territory. Things like that would have de-escalated. And the comparisons with the Cuban Missile Crisis 1962 is, is very valid. How America saw it as a major crisis when Russia was putting bases and, and offensive weapons within the Western Hemisphere in Cuba, almost on America's doorstep, and uh, uh, America mobilized against it, saying that's unacceptable. Well, why is it that the Monroe Doctrine is good, but a Putin doctrine of we're not going to allow American bases in our hemisphere, uh, why is that suddenly not acceptable? And of course, confusing ceasefires and negotiations with actual peace, omitting reconciliation as a viable option, um, all of these are hallmarks of propaganda. And you can see demonization of the enemy leaders, demonization of the enemy as individuals, and atrocity stories. Now, we found out a lot of the atrocity stories of the First and Second World War were whipped up or even done by one's own side and attributed to the enemy very conveniently. Catan Forest Massacre just comes to mind as one blatant example, but there were many others like that, where for decades people had to believe the lies and in the end it comes out, well, we were lying all the time and we knew that our side had done it, but nevertheless it was more convenient to blame the enemy. And so propaganda strategies include incompleteness of the information, inaccuracy, driving the agenda, milking the story, exploiting what we want to believe and uh, Nobody wants to believe the worst about themselves and their own leaders and countries. And reinforcing existing attitudes and repetitions, a lot of emotional phrases, because in warfare, words are weapons, and propaganda involves uh, word games. And um, we can see when we look at what caused the catastrophic conflict that broke out in 1914, which we call the Great War, the First World War, the 19th century was the greatest century of missionary advance. It was a century of astounding inventions, spectacular advances in technology, and many countries in Europe experienced dramatic spiritual revivals. And Christian missionaries won whole tribes and nations to Christ, and in the remotest regions of the globe, civilization and literacy and the gospel was reaching them. But 1914 shattered Europe. An entire generation of young men died in brutal trench warfare, no other war changed the map of Europe so dramatically. Three great European empires were destroyed by the First World War. The German Empire, the Russian Empire, the great Austro-Hungarian Empire. These that had held the line and protected Europe from centuries of waves of Turkish invasions suddenly removed. Austro-Hungarian Empire dismantled. Russian Empire collapsed. German Empire collapsed. 1914 marked the end of the greatest century of Christian advance and the beginning of what proved to be the worst century of persecution. And they called the First World War 
the war to end all wars? Well, hardly. It's been nonstop war since 1914, actually worldwide. The consequences, the disastrous, catastrophic consequences of the First World War continue to have far-reaching repercussions to this day. And to an extent, what we're seeing in Ukraine today is, is part of that ongoing uh, conflict. Of the 65 million European soldiers who were mobilized from 1914 to 1918, over 9 million were killed. Another 9 million were permanently disabled and 15 million were seriously injured. Contemporaries called it the Great War because it was literally greater than any war ever waged before that time. Of the 65 million soldiers mobilized in Europe, half were casualties, either dead or injured, more than half. In numbers of soldiers involved, in numbers of casualties, in terms of the disastrous consequences, World War I was the most catastrophic event in the history of civilization. And for people to be today uh, entertaining the possibility of, of going into a third world war, have they learned nothing from history? And we need to remember what we've lost and where we've fallen from and, uh, and bear in mind what we could lose if we go into this, which is being presented as inevitable, but is very avoidable. In 1914, Christian nations ruled virtually the entire world. With the exception of China and the Ottoman Empire, the globe was dominated by Christian powers, either Protestant, as in the case of the superpowers of Britain, Germany, and the United States, or Roman Catholic, as in the case of Austria-Hungarian Empire, the French Empire, Italy, Spain, Portugal, or Orthodox in the case of the Russian Empire. Following the Battle of Waterloo, 1815, and the conclusion of the French Revolution and the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the Congress of Vienna had ushered in a century of comparative peace. It was a century of astounding increases in population growth in Europe and unprecedented increases in productivity and standards of living. The 19th century was a century of incredible achievements and growth and expansion. And uh, you think at the beginning of the 19th century, you couldn't travel faster than a horse could run. And at the end, you had steam trains and uh, aircraft and so many changes and telegraphs and so much expansion. By 1914, all the inhabited world had been penetrated and for the most part mastered by people who were traditionally known as Christian. But the Christian era of bold missionary expansion came to an abrupt halt with the guns of August 1914. The great European powers who had been the heartland of Christendom and the source of most of the world's missionaries devastated each other's economies, annihilated millions of one another's young people in what has to be recognized the most tragic, senseless, avoidable conflict in history. Before the First World War, Europe had never been more powerful or more self-confident. There was no hint of any possibility of any challenge to the leadership of Europe in a civilized world. But 1914 marked a far more drastic turning point than 1815 or 1648 piece of Westphalia, or any of the other watershed events in its earlier history. As the great nations mobilized for war against themselves, it was said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. But even as that was said, it could not have been anticipated how much destruction and dislocation of Christian civilization would come from this disastrous conflict. When the lamps of political wisdom and spiritual truth or intellectual and artistic progress, moral foundations, economic growth, when they were rekindled, they shone far less brightly in the ancient centers of European civilization than they had for centuries before. And the sinister banksters 
who pulled the strings behind the scenes, who engineered the autogenocide of Europe. They were the same ones who owned most of the companies that made the machine guns and the bullets and the bombs and the shells and the artillery that destroyed the cream of Europe. There's numerous studies that have shown the role of Freemason bankers and politicians like Lord Nathan Rothschild, whose goal was to bring down Christian civilization. Now, yeah, how about this for conflict of interest? The same Nathan Rothschild, who was on the war cabinet that declared war, was the leader of the Bank of England, the Reserve Bank, so to speak. Uh, so he declares war and authorizes to borrow money from his bank to pay his companies, which are producing, like in Coventry, the uh, most of the tanks and uh, artillery and bombs and bullets that are going to go and kill the Christian youth in Europe. And so uh, here you've got the Rothschilds in government authorizing the loans from their bank to pay their companies for the weapons that are going to go and kill Christians by the millions. And there were Rothschilds on every side. Rothschilds were running the banks in Germany, in Italy, in France, in America, in Austria. In fact, the only major uh, player in the First World War who didn't have a Rothschild bank was Russia, which is why they were targeted for such brutal revolution and a sadistic uh, massacre of the entire royal family as part of the revenge against uh, the, the Tsar, uh, Alexander, back uh, in 1815, who had refused a Rothschild bank after the Peace of uh, Vienna, uh, following the Battle of Waterloo and the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And so sinister banksters were plainly involved, not just as war profiteers, but as major players bringing about this war, which was so avoidable, a war which basically killed Christianity in its heartland. Nothing could have stopped the positive onward march of Christianity worldwide, except that Christians were persuaded to kill one another so enthusiastically and so efficiently by pervasive propaganda. During the course of the Great War, 8% of the total population of Great Britain were killed or wounded. 9% of Germany's total population were killed or wounded. And 11% of France's entire population were casualties. Now that's total of the entire population. But remember, the casualties were half of the actual mobilized soldiers. But it was roughly 10% of the populations, if you count all men, women, children of all ages uh, in Great Britain, France and Germany. Even more devastating than actual numbers of people killed, crippled, seriously injured, was the damage to the spiritual life of Europe. Europe went from being a majority church-attending population, where over 64% of the population in Europe was in church every Sunday before the First World War, to a continent where most people didn't go to any church. Before the Second World War, it was about 42% of Europe was going to church. At the end of the Second World War, it went down to about 5% of Europe as in church on any given Sunday. And of course, during the COVID cult, uh, it went down to 0% in church at some times during the severe lockdowns. So the secularization of Europe and the breakdown of moral standards coincided with this great surge of revolutionary fervor that as Christianity went on the retreat, Marxist communism filled the vacuum by, left by the collapse of the Russian empire and by the emergence of so many new countries in Eastern Europe in the place of the Austrian Empire. Um, Bela Kun had this hideous communist revolution in Hungary where hundreds of thousands were killed before he was stamped out. And 
there were other revolutions in Bavaria and Berlin, which were stamped out, but uh, in which the communists sought to do a Bolshevik revolution then. The 19th century had seen such staggering growth in numbers, productivity, military power and wealth in Europe. One would have expected Europe to have continued to dominate the globe for centuries to come. But along with the spiritual decline of Europe came the decline of Western Europe on the total world scene. And the First World War made that happen. And we need to ask what devastation will be caused if Europe allows itself to continue to be sucked into this war, which is so avoidable and which is so unnecessary and will be so destructive. For over a thousand years before the First World War, Europe had been Christendom, the heartland, the stronghold of Christian civilization. The optimism that prevailed in 19th century gave way to profound pessimism after the First World War. The people had literally been bludgeoned into pessimism in the trenches. And the de-Christianization and the secularization of Europe was not only unprecedented in scope and speed, it would have been unthinkable before the First World War. Europe, the traditional stronghold of the Christian faith, where the proportion of those calling themselves Christians and the percentage of those attending churches has declined and rapidly uh, fell off after the First World War. And while Protestants increased rapidly in Africa, North and South America and Asia, the numbers of Christians in Europe sharply declined from 1914 on. What could have caused such a catastrophe? And why is it that the same kind of banksters and propagandists today are trying to manipulate us into another kind of war like the First World War? Well, it's notable that social Darwinism had become so popular amongst most of the governments of Europe that their thinking emphasized the importance of armed struggle between nations as healthy and necessary for evolution and progress, you know, evolution um, through uh, the struggle uh, to bring about the preservation of favored races. So uh, they saw armed struggle as something that was necessary because through violence uh, comes a better evolution. And then there were the entangling alliances, particularly the Entente Cordiale between France and Russia and between Britain and France and between Britain and Russia, this formed the Triple Entente. And the question is, why did Great Britain form an alliance with their traditional enemies? I mean, the French and Russians have traditionally been um, Britain's enemies. And before 1914, Britain's most solid traditional ally was Germany. How did a terrorist act in Sarajevo sever the special relationship between Britain and Germany, which had endured for centuries? It's understandable Austria was going to deal with their troublesome terror-sponsoring neighbor, Serbia, which had been encouraging and hosting revolutionaries and terrorists against Austrian-Hungarian Empire. But even as Austria presented an ultimatum to Serbia, the Russian Empire was mobilizing against Austria. And this led to Germany mobilizing in support of its Austrian ally against Russia. Well, the French were allied to the Russian Empire, and they were spoiling for a fight to reverse the humiliating military defeat that they'd suffered after declaring war on Germany in 1870. Why is Great Britain in this? Well, strangely, King Edward VII had allied Britain to France and Russia, probably out of spite for his evangelical parents, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. So Britain ended up on the side of its traditional enemies, France and Russia. Um, apparently one of the reasons because King Edward liked the Parisian prostitutes and uh, signed this uh, entente while on a drunken spree in Paris. Well, the fact that Britain ended up against its traditionally closest ally, Germany, and on the side of France and, and Russia doesn't make sense. Bearing on Britain as Protestant, as was Germany, there was 
tremendous amount of ties, blood ties between Germany and Britain to the extent that British people are called Anglo-Saxons. Well, where the Saxons come from? Germany. Where the Angles come from? Well, actually also Germany and Denmark. Uh, Angerland and uh, and Saxony are, are in Germany and, and Denmark. So where the Normans come from? Uh, Norway. And uh, so really, when, when you look at the a way how Britain ended up against their traditional ally and on the side of their traditional enemies, it's bizarre. Most of the 65 million soldiers, airmen and sailors involved in the Great War would have been unable to explain what they were actually fighting about. That they were pawns in a diplomatic power game manipulated by unseen conspirators, including banksters behind the scenes, would have been the furthest thing from most of their minds. From the British point of view, Involvement in the First World War was an even greater mystery. There were no British interests at stake. Had Britain stayed out of the European conflict, it would not have been a world war. It would have just been a European conflict. So the question would have been, what would have happened if Britain had stayed out of the conflict in 1914? Well, first of all, Britain would have kept her empire. Secondly, Germany would have been able to defeat both France and Russia in a matter of months. New treaties would have been signed. Some borders may have been adjusted. But no cataclysm collapse of empires would have occurred. The death toll would have been a fraction of what it became. America would not have been dragged into war. Europe would have remained the most powerful industrial, political, military force in the world. The constitutional monarchies in Central and Eastern Europe would have endured and continued to reform. There would have been no power vacuum into which communism could have been born. So there obviously would have been no Second World War either if there hadn't been a first so all in all, the world would have been a far better and different place if Britain had just stayed out of the conflict between Austria and Serbia in 1914. After some terrorist had murdered the Austrian heir to the throne and his wife in Sarajevo, what did that have to do with Britain and why would we go to war on the side of the terrorists and the terrorist-sponsoring nation? So why did Britain get involved in the First World War? Well, the Liberals had been power in the House of Commons since 1906 and the electoral support was withering away. And Herbert Askew's government was on the verge of collapse. It was clear they went to war partly to keep the Conservative Party from ousting them in the imminent elections. Now, to those who ask, is it possible that any political leaders could be so small-minded as to jeopardize the lives of millions for the good of their nation, merely to keep their political party in power for a few more years? Well, actually, yes, recent history has continue to confirm that just such corrupt pettiness, short-sightedness continues to predominate amongst many who meant to be civil servants. We've got some of the most irresponsible, narrow-sighted, selfish people running governments today. And if you look at the amount of governments in Europe today that do not have uh, children, where you've got parentless leaders, childless leaders who, who are not parents, who are not grandparents, who have no personal stake in the future, and it, it's quite disturbing. It's not just Macron and France and so on. It's it's a whole spate of leaders in Europe um, have no children. I mean, Angela Merkel, for example, had no children or grandchildren. And uh, you just look and think, well, Theresa May, and you can go on with so many other examples. Uh, it's absolutely bizarre. Never before had so much of mankind been engaged simultaneously in war as in the First World War. Never before had mankind amassed such huge armies or produced such weapons that worked wholesale destruction on so gigantic a scale. And the Protestant faith had originated in Germany. Germany was the historic center of Lutheranism. From Germany, thousands of Protestant missionaries had gone into every part of the world. But it was Germany who bore the brunt 
of the First World War. It was Germany was crushed and divided by the outcome of the Second World War. And it was chiefly the Protestant sections of Germany which were betrayed into the Soviet zone and subjected to communist oppression. Millions of Germans were forcibly displaced by the westward movement of Poland's boundary at the end of the Second World War. And most of those displaced people were Protestants. One third of Poland was stolen by Russia. And to compensate, a third of Prussia was stolen uh, and given to Poland as recompense. And so millions of people forcibly removed from their homelands, which dancers had had occupied for centuries. But the effects on Britain, the involvement of predominantly Protestant Britain in two world wars had a disastrous repercussion on Christianity. Throughout the 19th century, Britain had been the greatest source of missionaries worldwide, the greatest finances of missions worldwide. Both Germany and Britain, the number of Protestant church members plummeted after the First World War. Missionary involvement declined dramatically. Both countries suffered shocking secularization. So Britain didn't benefit, Germany didn't benefit, Austria didn't benefit. So who benefited from the First World War? Well, many bankers and industrialists amassed stupendous wealth at the expense of the combatants who incurred staggering debts. And those who control the debts control everything. Communism benefited the most, seizing and subjugating all of Russia and entire most of Eastern Europe. So in the wake of the First World War, many came to speak of a post-Christian era. As wars and revolutions threw the entire world into disorder, pessimists and critics predicted the imminent disappearance of Christianity. And it's against all odds that remarkably, Protestant Christianity has shown remarkable vitality and survived what seemed like a death blow in its heartland. But as Christians had overcome the Russian Empire, the Roman Empire, the barbarian the Viking invasions, the Arab invasions, the onslaught of the Mongols, and the bubonic plague, the invasions of the Turks, and the upheavals of the French Revolution, Christians have adapted and overcome, especially in Eastern Europe. But Christianity has experienced the most dramatic growth in Africa, in America, and Asia. But even in Europe, in some of the most unexpected places like Ukraine and Russia and Romania, behind what used to be the Iron Curtain, churches have multiplied, faith has deepened, despite the most relentless anti-Christian persecution by communist governments. But we need to ask ourselves, how is it possible that here we are again, at 108 years later, uh, about to be manipulated by the same kind of coalition of propagandists in the media and banksters and industrialists behind the scenes who are war profiting off what is going on in Ukraine. They don't care about Ukraine or the Ukraine peoples. They don't haven't cared for the last eight years about the Ukrainians being murdered in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass regions. Um, and they don't care about the ones right now. As some people have said, Biden's policy seems to be to fight to the last Ukrainian. Uh, Ukrainians are the ones suffering the consequences of all of this, which has been done in the name of helping Ukraine. But just bear in mind what happened to spark the First World War, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in Sarajevo. Now, uh, there's no end of lessons to learn. Those who forget the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. And here we are about to repeat a whole lot of lessons uh, that we should have learned already the first time. Well, first of all, the date chosen for the state visit of Archduke Franz Ferdinand to Sarajevo was a date of painful historic significance for Serbs, the anniversary of their worst defeat, the 28th of June, 1389, at the hands of Ottoman Turks at Kosovo. And so the fact that 
the heir to the Austrian throne was scheduled to visit Sarajevo, this volatile cosmopolitan half-Oriental community, um, which had very shortly before been under Ottoman Turkish Muslim rule and which had been uh, formally incorporated in the Austrian Empire only a few years before. And at a height of Serbian nationalism, uh, where the Serbians were uh, deluding themselves, they were a great power. And when to think that the security uh, people responsible for the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's uh, safety uh, didn't know their history well enough to recognize the significance of the state, just as bizarre. But you had the head of the Serbian military intelligence, Colonel Dragutin Dimitrijev, who was known by the codename Apis after the Greek god, um, the, the Egyptian bull god, Apis. He controlled the Black Hand, an international terrorist group run by Major Vojin Tankashovic. And this group provided the young Bosnians, including Gavrilo Princip, with four Browning semi-automatic pistols, six bombs, and six cyanide capsules. And this was in May 1914. And Princip received some training in pistol target practice in the park in Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. I mean, that's how open it was. And Colonel uh, Dragutin Dimitrijev was described as a revolutionary fanatic, pale, bald, heavy, enigmatic, like a giant Mongolian. And he never married. He has devoted to the movement of Serb nationalism and international terrorism. He required his revolutionaries to undergo hooded initiational rituals, including a seal engraved with skull and crossbones, dagger, bomb, and poison. In fact, they looked very much the whole thing like Sabbateans, who dedicated to destruction of Christianity. Murder had been his business since his involvement in the assassination in 1903 of the king, King Alexander and Queen Draga of Serbia. The king and queen were murdered in their own palace bedroom by a group of Serbian officers, which included Dragutin. And now this man is training people to bring down the Austrian Empire and spark the First World War. Well, Serbia was hardly a democracy. We've heard how many times we're going into to protect democracy. Well, I don't know what kind of democracy... Uh, Ukraine is when they have banned 11 of the 12 political parties and when all media has been banned except that controlled by the government. I mean, the very definition of democracy is multi-party and free press, but uh, Ukraine doesn't have that. Uh, but <clears throat> just like we were told that the first Gulf War in 1991 was to restore democracy to Kuwait. Well, you can't restore democracy where it's never been before. And uh, this business of fighting for democracy in Serbia is also a lie because Serbia wasn't a democracy. It was a rogue terror-sponsoring state. Its rulers were intimately involved in international terrorism. And the evidence is overwhelming that the young Bosnian terrorists who murdered the Archduke Franz Ferdinand received weapons from the Serbian military and they received their basic training in Belgrade Park. The Serbian Prime Minister, Pasek, informed his cabinet that at the end of May, assassins were on the way to Sarajevo to kill Franz Ferdinand. Serbian state documents include details about the movements of the assassins and the bombs and pistols in their luggage. The interior ministry in Belgrade was fully briefed on all aspects of the mission, but no warning was forwarded to the Austrian authorities of the planned assassination. But from the Austrian side, the lack of rudimentary security arrangements on that tragic day is astounding. Acts of terrorism in and from the Balkans were a clear and present danger. British cartoons at the time published cartoons with Serbian anarchists asking one another, what time is it by your bomb? And as Archduke Franz Ferdinand left his estate on the 23rd of June to travel by train to Bosnia, commented, our journey starts down there, they will be throwing bombs at us, which of course they did. 
Now, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Joseph, had lost his wife, the Empress Elizabeth, when she was stabbed to death by an anarchist in 1889. She was boarding a steamer to Geneva at the time that she was stabbed with an ice pick to death. In 1908, a 20-year-old Slav student assassinated Count Potovic, the governor of Galicia. And at the trial of an American-born Croat who had fired at a member of the royal family, the judge asked if he thought killing people was justified. And the man responded in court, in this case, yes, it is. It's a general opinion in America, and behind me are half a million American Croats. Well, in 1906, an anarchist bombed the wedding procession of King Alfonso XIII of Spain. King Alfonso was marrying a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, and they had a bomb thrown at their wedding uh, procession. In June 1908, a young Bosnian, Bogdan Zarajic, had failed in his attempt to assassinate the emperor in Mostar. Late, he travelled to Sarajevo and fired at the general uh, Marijan uh, Varasanin uh, of Austria, and the Black Hand of Serbia provided his revolver for this. So these are some of the contexts which you meant to forget about because it upsets the narrative. In June 1912, the governor of Croatia was fired upon in Zagreb by an attempted assassin. And although the, the governor was missed, a member of his administration was wounded in this assassination attempt. March 1914, the vicar general of Transylvania, also in Austria province, was killed by a time bomb sent through the post from Romania. Numerous conspiracies to assassinate officials was detected and prevented by the Austrian police, but obviously not enough. Now, although Gavrilo Princip was known by the Austrian police to be a potential threat, and when the local governor of Bosnia was warned of the threat from the young Bosnians, he only laughed. And the officials at Sarajevo spent more time discussing the dinner menus and the correct temperature which to serve the dishes and the wines than to any issues of security. And so... On the 28th of June 1914, a date of immense significance for the Serbians, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, with his wife Sophie, on their 10th wedding anniversary, set out in accordance with a published schedule, leaving the Sarajevo railway station, and before its first scheduled stop, a bomb was thrown, uh, struck the car, but bounced off the hood before it exploded, wounding two bystanders. And as the uh, conspirator, the uh, man named Kabravonik, was arrested and led away, he shouted, I'm a Serbian hero. Well, the other conspirators lost their nerve and failed to use their weapons. But during the attack, the Archduke continued um, with his published schedule, meeting of the governor general, uh, watched the folklore dance, visited the hospital where the wounded uh, who'd been hit by the bomb were being treated. And upon leaving the hospital, the driver took a wrong turn, turning left after crossing a bridge, was told to stop and turn back. But Cars at that time didn't have a reverse gear, so it had to be pushed backwards up the Apple Way. It was at this point that Gravello Princip walked up to the open car and fired at Franz and Sophie Ferdinand at point-blank range. The last words of the Archduke were, Sophie, Sophie, do not die, stay alive for our children. But they both died. They were survived by their daughter and two sons. 28th of June was their 14th wedding anniversary. And the, the local... District Judge Leo Pfeffer commented on Princip, it was difficult to imagine that so frail a looking individual could have committed so serious a deed. In fact, when Princip had volunteered to fight for Serbia in the first Balkan War of 1912, he was rejected as being too small and frail. At his interrogation by the police in Sarajevo, Princip declared his desire that his life um, would be spent in order to kill the Archduke and 
Within days, all the conspirators were in custody, except the Muslim Mohammed, uh, Mohammed Basik, who escaped to Montenegro. Interestingly, as Austria did not execute adolescents, and Princip was only 18 at the time, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison, died of natural causes, tuberculosis, in 1918. And before he has died, he has asked by prison psychiatrists if he felt any regrets that his deed had sparked a world war in the deaths of millions. And Princip said he had no regrets. And interestingly, Princip had just killed the one-man Austrian empire who was committed to averting war with either Serbia or Russia. Franz Ferdinand had been the only member of the Russian royal family who had good relations with the Russians, was on record declaring, I shall never lead a war against Russia. I'll make sacrifice to avoid it. A war between Austria and Russia would end with either the overthrow of the Romanovs or the overthrow of the Habsburgs or perhaps the overthrow of both. And he said, let us not play Balkan warriors ourselves. Let us not stoop to this hooliganism. Let us stay aloof and watch the scum bash on each other's skulls. It would be unforgivable and insane to start something that would pit us against Russia. And so Franz Ferdinand's moderate stand was seen by all, especially that he is willing to make a state visit to one of the most volatile cities in one of the most unstable parts of Europe in an open car with virtually no security. But it's the practice of terrorists to assassinate moderates to provoke reaction. Now, at the time, the British ambassador in Germany declared the assassination was a dreadful act which the political consequences of are incalculable. In St. Petersburg, the Russian journalist dismissed the assassination as characteristic bit of Balkan savagery. Virtually every country in Europe had suffered the effects of assassinations by communist revolutionary anarchists like Princip. There was general sympathy for Austria and disgust for Serbia's obvious role. And yet, just a month later, most of Europe would mobilize against Austria and against Austria and Germany's attempts to deal with the Serbian terrorist threat. And this is the thing that's so extraordinary. Do you know that that's why the Versailles Treaty was signed on the 28th of June, 1919, on the fifth anniversary of the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And every 28th of June after that, at the White House in Washington, D.C., the American President Woodrow Wilson would ho hoist the Serbian flag at the White House on the 28th of June each year, 1915 through to 1919 as a sign of respect for the Serbian assassins. It, it's just extraordinary that we ended up on the side of the terrorist and terrorist sponsoring nations against those who'd been the victims and somehow convinced ourselves it was for peace, democracy, Christian civilization and justice went was against all those things. And I must say, as we have people trying to galvanize us into war against Russia now, it's like history is repeating itself. The same kind of lies, the same kind of propaganda, same kind of stereotyping, and the same kind of ignoring the context. And we're finding ourselves probably on the wrong side. And it's Christians against Christians in this case. Again, which is, in, in this case, the largest groups of born-again Christians in Europe today on Russia and Ukraine and Romania. And so uh, this is a tragedy that we should not be fueling and we should not be trying to get in the side of, but you can tell which is the wrong side. It's a side with all the propaganda, the demonizing of the enemy, the caricaturing of the enemy, the stereotyping, the misdirections, the ignoring of the context. 2 Chronicles 19 verse, four, verse 2 says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Back to Andrew. 
Thank you, Peter. And just what you said there, many people have been talking about why they've got two white nations fighting each other when the Ukraine situation is very obvious that they're not going to win. So everyone in the Ukraine who's being injured or killed as a result of this conflict in Russia is, I mean, all these deaths are needless deaths. But obviously in this case, uh, the war is not going to be something that Ukraine are going to win. So someone seems to be uh, benefiting from all these people dying over there. And when you just made the point that the biggest uh, resurgence of Christianity or the biggest number of Christians in Europe today are in Russia or the Ukraine, that would give us another idea as to why they've pitted these people against each other, wouldn't it, Peter? Indeed it has. And that's why when we get these people saying we need to send billions more of this and that to Ukraine. And, and many people saying, what's happening to the weapons? There's a lot of evidence that many of the weapons being sent to Ukraine are actually being sold in the foreign markets uh, to other bidders and the money going into this incredibly corrupt government of Zelensky in, in uh, uh, Kiev. And uh, then you've got the bio labs and uh, biological warfare uh, in violation of all Geneva Convention, Hague Conventions uh, going on in Ukraine right now. Why does America have something like 120 different biological research laboratories in Ukraine. And why is there such a link between the Biden family and the government of Zelensky in, in Ukraine? How can they get, how can the American uh, president, at that time Biden was vice president under Obama, when he was able to get the attorney general fired because he was investigating his son's involvement in a corrupt company? And there's so much corruption, there's so much nonsense on the go uh, here, uh, but there's some people getting very, very, very wealthy on this, just like with the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. It didn't help the people there. Uh, far from it. Millions of people died in, in those wars. Uh, but the people who are producing the weapons and the banks giving the loans and uh, where you had to pay the interest to and so on, well, they're doing fine, thank you. So there's there's a sort of military-industrial complex. There's the propagandists and then there's the bankers who are making a killing, literally a killing, out of these wars and so we should recognize this is not for the good of the Ukrainian people. And it's certainly not good for our country. And why, why is Britain involved in this? Why is America involved in this? They didn't care about Ukraine when Ukraine was being bludgeoned by the Soviet Union and uh, when Stalin was murdering the people in the Holodomor. They don't, didn't care about Ukraine back then, did they? They didn't care about Ukraine when it came to the Yalta Agreement where they just betrayed them. It, they didn't care about Ukraine back in 1919 with the Versailles Treaty, where they betrayed Ukraine, who had been liberated uh, by the Brest-Litovsk Treaty that Germany had had uh, Russia agreed to the year before, and they forced Ukraine back under the Soviet Union. So it's hard to believe that Britain and America really care about the Ukraine people, having betrayed them consistently for over a century. And it looks like the Ukraine people are being this time betrayed and used. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, another uh, a note I've made, a uh, fascinating presentation. I always learn a great deal from your work, uh, Peter. But you mentioned something that many people will be familiar with, uh, the Rothschild family funding both sides in wars. But one thing I thought it was worth touching on is our late friend, Stephen Mitford Goodson, because something that jumped out of his work on the Boer War, or wars, was he'd uncovered actual pictures of hampers that were sent to the British soldiers, and they were actually from the Rothschild family. What can you tell us about that? 
Yes, uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson in the Genocide of the Boers book, which we actually have available here in our bookshop, uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson uh, documents the fact that the Rothschilds, three major Rothschilds signed this card, and there's the picture of it, uh, which was distributed to all 450,000 uh, British and Commonwealth uh, uh, Empire soldiers who were in South Africa at that time, uh, Christmas 1901, uh, uh, thanking them for their service. And it was a very generous hamper, we must say. It had everything from pies and Christmas cakes and cigars and cigarettes and playing cards and sweets and a whole range of good things, uh, uh, meat tins and so on. Uh, so it was a very generous hamper, sent them all, with the thanks from these three bankers. And um, I mean, as somebody who's who's been involved in war myself, um, uh, I, I can't imagine what we would have thought if we suddenly got um, some hamper and a card from a bunch of bankers. And we think, we didn't know we were fighting for you. We thought we were here fighting for our country. So I don't know what the average Tommy thought when he got these uh, hampers, but uh, the Rothschilds were quite open about the fact that um, the Witwatersrand, the White Waters Ridge, is the richest piece of real estate in earth we wanted. And so the Anglo-Boer War was not for whatever the propaganda said it was for, just plainly for the gold. The Transvaal happened to be sitting on the biggest gold deposits in the world, and the Rothschilds were happy to uh, be um, uh, admitting we've mobilized the entire British Empire, including Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, everyone is fighting there to crush these farmers so that we can get the gold under our control. And they were that open about it, and Stephen Goodson documents it in his book, Genocide of the Boers. Thank you, Peter. And um, before we go, folks, Peter's going to be um, away for the next three weeks, be returning four weeks' time from today. So can you just let the audience know well, what you're going to be up to, Peter? Yes, um, we've got a great commission course coming up now for the last 24 years. Every year we run a three-week intensive missionary selection training program. It's, it's very intense. It's like from six in the morning till midnight every day. And uh, it's, it's body, mind and spirit. It's, uh, it involves... Uh, lectures, practicals, workshops, hikes, outreaches, climbing Table Mountain, night hikes, all sorts of things, uh, Bible smuggling um, scenarios where you've got hunter teams and smuggling teams and uh, escape and evasion, all of that. So uh, this is something that we use as a, a basic training program for anyone interested in working with a mission or just interested in missions in general. Most people who come to our Great Commission courses have no commitment to our mission and go off and work in others, which is just fine. It's for the cause, but it's probably the most intensive missionary boot camp around. And uh, uh, we've been running it 24 years, and we've had people coming from as far field as New Zealand, Canada, Australia, uh, from all over Europe and, um, and Africa coming to these uh, Great Commission courses. So I'm fully involved, and uh, I do everything everyone else does, and I lead them. Uh, even though I'm 62, I'm, I'm, I do the hikes and night hikes, and uh, I wouldn't want our people to be doing anything that I don't do. So I try to lead from the front, may not be as fast as my young son, Calvin, who's uh, the PT instructor. He's he's much uh, fitter and harder and stronger and faster. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that's where I'm going to be for the next three weeks. And it's so intense that I won't have time for anything else over the, over the next time. So pray for us. And if anyone's in the area near Cape Town, you welcome to get involved if you'd like to experience some of uh, Missionary Boot Camp. Thank you. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Peter. Yeah, folks, please keep Peter, uh, Frontline Fellowship and all those participating in this Great Commission course in your prayers. What I'm going to do is we mentioned last week, I included the link in the show post to the video interview Peter did with the Irish journalist Gemma O'Doherty. I'm going to leave that in the post for today's show so that, you know, if I'm sure many of you will miss Peter over the next um, three weeks. So if you haven't listened to it then, uh, haven't listened to it yet rather then it's there for you to listen to you know now or you might want to go back to it in a week when you generally listen to a show with Peter and of course also don't forget there's the archive of our shows that Peter hosts that go all the way back and uh, you should be able to navigate them by title so please go to them that link is also included in the post for our shows together so Peter before we go can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you Yes, thank you, Andrew. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. I think Americans would pronounce it. So that's the email, peter at frontline.org.za, and our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontline Mission, SA, SA short for South Africa. Frontline Mission, SA.org, that's the website. You also find us on social media if you're on Facebook. I've got both Frontline Fellowship and Peter Hammond on there. Be good to hear from you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic information as always today. Folks, you have been listening to the real story of how conspirators coerce countries into catastrophic conflicts. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.